and let us pray once again. Great Father in heaven, O glorious one, I am weak, too weak to do this monumental task of speaking your word. And my brothers and sisters before me are too weak to listen and comprehend your word. How lost we would be if you did not leave us your Holy Spirit, O Savior. For you promised that your grace is sufficient for us, for your power is made perfect in weakness. And so we, in our weakness, declare that before you right now. We are not here because we are the good ones on a Sunday morning. We are not here listening because we are the ones with the cognitive ability to do so. We are here, Holy Spirit, because you are in us, giving us new life and directing our attention toward Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we ask, Spirit, that you stir within us now, that I might preach, and that my brothers and sisters might listen, so that you, O oh God, are given glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're taking a small detour from our Jesus Makes Us Mad, Jesus Makes Us Glad series, coming from John chapters 5 and 6, but John will be ending in two weeks, that series. Um, but I thought this passage today really fit nicely with the theme of the series, and not just because it's actually only two chapters away in John chapter 8. I think that it fits, and I think you will too. So please turn with me to your Bibles, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bibles, it's printed on the back of your sermon outline. John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. May God bless this reading of his word. Just want to start by saying two things. First, I was really helped by reading commentaries by Leon Morris and Bill Bruce Milne as I prepared this message, and especially by a conversation 
that I had almost 20 years ago with my friend Donnie Cho, who taught me how to understand this passage for the first time. It's good to have good books, to read good books about Jesus Christ, and it's good to have good conversations with friends about Jesus Christ. I encourage you to both. Second thing, now your Bible might say something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. I just want to set your hearts at ease about what that means. The ancient church fathers who helped us by collecting the writings of the apostles into the New Testament canon were absolutely sure that this passage happened and Jesus did and said these things. They were sure of it. Because they, who lived only decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, are certain, we are certain. They just didn't know which one of the apostles wrote it, so they put it, you know, took their best guess and put it in John, right in this location, though some of them put it in Luke. That's all it means. I'm so happy that this is in the Gospel of John, and if you're not already, I think you're going to be happy too. Now, this passage is often used as a way to live out a certain philosophy. Live and let live. Hey, look at that. The Pharisees dared Jesus to judge, and he didn't. He embarrassed them all like the roadrunner embarrasses Wiley Coyote, and they walk away, and no one gets judged. So live and let live. In fact, didn't Jesus say, judge not that you not be judged? And so people think that this right here is the entire background behind that expression, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But in fact, that is not what this passage is about. And the question that you have to ask yourself as we read and explore this is, what does it mean that the woman was not condemned? What does it mean that the woman was not condemned? Sermon, as usual, has three points. The story you think you know, the twist you didn't see coming, and the one who saves us from our sin and calls us to sin no more. The story you think you know. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus just got back from his favorite place anywhere, the Mount of Olives, just praying there. And then he comes, where? To the temple. And what does he do there? He goes and he sits in the temple as teachers with authority who have something to teach the people do. He's in Jerusalem at this point, right? He's in the temple teaching, kind of what we'd expect of Jesus, right? And what happens in that place, that place of worship where people are worshiping and bringing their sacrifices to the Lord? These Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, take this woman that they say was actually caught in the act of adultery. In the act, meaning, that language means that they caught her doing it. And so they take her and drag her and throw her down at Jesus' feet. 
It would be as shocking as if one of the elders had taken someone that they found and threw her right down here while I was doing this. Actually, much more shocking. And they say, they're trying to quote the law of God. They mess it up, but they're trying to say, we caught her in the act of adultery. And God's law is clear. She's got to die. What do you say, Jesus? Teacher. Now, what the Pharisees are clumsily trying to refer to is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, in the law that God gave to Moses for the people of Israel. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So they got the death part right, all right? Not the context and even the mode of death, but they got the death part right. And so what are they doing here? Scripture tells us very clearly, they're trying to get him in a trap. They're trying to get him in this inescapable trap where there's only two answers, Jesus. Either you're going to judge her worthy of death or you're not. And we're going to bet not. I bet you they had, like, shekel bets on the side. Hey, 10 shekels says that Jesus lets her go. All right, that Jesus is going to be soft on sin, meaning that he's going to say, listen, I didn't come to kill you all. All right, and so what this woman has done, I'm going to say isn't deserving of death. They're betting that he's going to say that, and then they've got him because the Messiah can't say that any part of God's law is incorrect or has passed. He's got to know it, and he's got to love it, all of it. And so if Jesus lets her go, then they've got him. On the other hand, all right, they're probably giving 80, 20 odds on this one. They're thinking, if he says, you've judged her uh, correctly, she is guilty. You see, there was no issue of guilt or innocence here. The standard was being caught in the act, not coming out of the same like, hut or house together, not coming out of the same room together, but witnesses. There's no question of guilt here. And so, it's possible Jesus might say, she has sinned against God's law. She does deserve to die. Let's kill her. So now, the Pharisees would be really happy, even happier about that one, because, one, the Romans had this particular thing about them being the government, and so no one got to kill people except them. In fact, that's why the Pharisees went to Pilate to ask for him to crucify Jesus, because they couldn't. But even better than that would be Wow, if Jesus, if Jesus said that, yeah, stone her, then all of his popular appeal just disappears. This guy who is so cool, feeding people on the, you know, just on the hillside and saying that your sins are forgiven, if he's the one that comes out and says, your sins are not forgiven, you don't need Twitter to go out and say, oh man, can you believe what Jesus did? Snap, that's totally, I totally heard it. 
yeah, I'm not following him anymore. They're just, I mean, come on. He's like all of these other guys. I mean, sure, he's got a few other tricks, but uh-uh. That, that would be the mother load for the Pharisees. And so they tried putting Jesus in this inescapable trap. Either you're too merciful against God's law or you're merciless against God's people. So they put him in the trap and say, you know, since you say you're God, be God and judge. And to their surprise, he does. And the first people he judges is them. See, the Bible says, what does it say? That he bent down, he knelt, leaned down, and he started writing. Now, there isn't anything that part- says exactly what he wrote, but a few commentators said this. Back in that day, the, old, the uh, old prescription was in a sentencing, that the sentence would be written down first, and then it would be read aloud. And that Jesus then may have been writing the very sins of the Pharisees in front of them. All right, can you imagine? Name and sin. All right, we all would be mortified if that happened to us. Can you imagine Jesus doing that to the Pharisees? I can. And he's doing this. And what they press and say, you know, just judge, you know, just what, what are you going to do, teacher? And he continues doing this and then stands up and says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. The other commentators actually say something that Bill Melcher suggested in the morning, that Jesus might have been writing scripture. Because what did Jesus say in John three seventeen? If he, didn't, if he didn't write this, we know he certainly said it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So who is he saying stands condemned? These Pharisees who are before him, who deny Jesus being the Son of God. That's a, quite a powerful combination, isn't it? Can you imagine someone, you're trying to accuse someone, and then in that moment, someone just, the, the person that you're appealing to, comes and says, I know you're guilty of even worse. That would shut you up pretty effectively, wouldn't it? And so one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. What did it mean to the woman that she wasn't condemned by these angry men? Certainly she's got to be relieved, right? She's got to be relieved. Put yourself in her situation. You know, one commentator even said that they might have dragged, I mean, if it was, she was caught in the act, they might have taken her, dragged her out, and thrown her at Jesus' feet naked. I mean, why not? That's their MO, right? Fully exposed in a public place of worship, and they want to have it out. What a trap. And where was the guy? Did you miss that part about Deuteronomy 22, 22? That the man and the woman must both be put to death. He had all the earmarks of a setup. Jesus didn't fall for it. And I'm sure that this woman who was not condemned 
was so glad. But, second point, there's a twist you don't see coming. I certainly didn't in like 20 years of reading this passage or talking to my friends. And the twist is, you think Jesus didn't judge her, but he did. You think Jesus didn't judge her, but he did. See, let's, let's get something completely clear right here. This is God himself that the Pharisees and this woman were before. And God does not take sin lightly. Think, is there any part of Scripture which gives you, would give you any sense that he would be soft on sin, saying, hey, let that one go. I'm not calling that one a sin anymore. Hey, I'm cool with these things now. I'm more enlightened. God's portrayal in all of Scripture is very consistent. This woman and those Pharisees were before the judge of all the earth, of whom Abraham said, will he not do right? And so in that moment, that woman should have been terrified. Maybe, I don't know, it'll be interesting to meet her in heaven and ask, hey, did you know what was going on? She should have been terrified because these angry men all left one by one, but now she stands naked and exposed. If not physically, her sins are exposed before God himself. And rightly, we, if we were in that position knowing this, we would be saying, you guys come back. I can take those who will kill my body, break my bones, but I cannot have my sins before the living God. That very concept is how Jonathan Edwards scared people back in the Great Awakening with his magnum opus sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because that's all we deserve to be. And this woman is there before him, the judge of all the earth, from whom all the laws came from, and whom all sin is against. David had it right. Against you and you alone have I sinned, O God. Sure, he got Uriah the Hittite killed, but murder against Uriah wasn't his big sin. Sin against God and his perfect ways, that was the big sin. And so this woman who has no defense is now before the one who can judge her. The Pharisees had that part right. They dared him to be God, and, you know, he does. And he can judge. He is perfect. When he tells us, judge not lest ye be judged, he's not taking that on himself. He can judge. He is the sinless one and the one in authority. He can judge. And he even calls her out on her sin. You know, this brings to mind in the Chronicles of Narnia, that great, uh, just a conversation between the beavers and Lucy, when they're describing Aslan, the king of Narnia, as the lion, the great lion. And Lucy's getting all scared, saying, then isn't he safe? And Beaver shouts back, well, part of what we've just said cries out, safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's the king. And that's what this woman 
is about to discover. See, just before, John preached already from John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus said. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or right after this, John 7.24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, he calls us to do. And then, right after this passage, yet even if I do judge, Jesus says, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. God never sweeps sin under the rug. He exposes that sin because it needs to be exposed. But then after that exposing, he shows mercy. You see, there's this interesting thing. Pharisees completely just, you know, blew right past them, the irony of this. Jesus was sitting in the temple courtyard. Inside the temple, in the Holy of Holies, behind a curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant, which God called the mercy seat. The mercy seat, where God would show mercy to his people, where he said, do these sacrifices, trust in my promises, actually probably the, the reverse order, trust in my promises and obey me, and I will show you mercy. John has, Pastor John has wonderfully defined mercy or grace to us, is blessing when demerit is deserved. Mercy shown where condemnation is deserved is the definition of grace. And that place in the temple is where God showed it to the people of Israel. And now Jesus shows that the ark, that mercy seat, was only a foreshadowing of the true mercy seat, Jesus Christ himself. The one sitting down with this woman laying before him. He is the one from whom mercy flows. He did judge her and say she was worthy of death. But do you see these words? Neither do I condemn you. Though you are worthy of being judged, I do not condemn you. But the Bible's quite clear. God is quite clear that the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus Christ loves the entire law of God, he cannot compromise on this. There, where there is sin, there must be death. And so in 1 Peter 2.24... We see what Jesus was talking about. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He took our sins, bore them in his body to bear our condemnation, to bear her condemnation. Jesus knew that there would be death for sin and it was going to be his. That's the cost of him saying, neither do I condemn you. That Jesus himself on the cross would say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
And we see in the cross of Jesus Christ that perfect moment that Psalm 85 talks about of when justice and mercy kiss. God takes our sins seriously. The Father took it so seriously that he sent his Son. Jesus the Son took it so seriously that he took it to the cross. And the Holy Spirit takes it so seriously that he indwells within us to kill sin, that we might be more and more like the image of God. See, one of the commentator, Bruce Milne, said it this way. Here is the miracle of the grace of God. You can, I put it in the reflection so you can read it along if you want. Here is the miracle of the grace of God. There is no greater wonder than this the turning of water into wine, the healing of a dying lad by a word, the feeding of 5,000 and more with a snack lunch, the walking on a storm-tossed sea, none of these, nor all of them together, compares with this. That Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. In this sentence, and in the heart of mercy which lay behind it, is all our hope and all our salvation forever. And so once again, I ask you, what does it mean that the woman was not condemned? What do you think it meant to her? In fact, she probably had no clue what was going on in that moment. But after, maybe after Jesus Christ went to the cross and and died for all our sins, maybe then she clued in. And at that point, what do you think? That Jesus said, you are not condemned, meant to her. That God himself tells her that she is accepted and not cast out. She belongs and is not thrown away. She has life and not death. And so what does it mean to you that she was not condemned? See, if this passage is about us not judging others, then we're the Pharisees. And so just stop judging others, punks. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about the fact that though God judges us for our sins, he does not condemn us for them. And that makes us the woman here caught in adultery. And what does it mean that you are not condemned? That you are accepted. You are God's beloved. You are his friend. Christ is your brother. The Holy Spirit is your home. You are not condemned. And so that brings us to the third point. That the one who saves us from our sin calls us to sin no more. Calls us to sin no more. If this is true, if this is your life, how are you going to live? All right? We hear, we read about all these courageous stories of people who were given a second chance and then how they used and milked life for all it was worth with that second chance. Like with heart transplants. You don't get too many hearts out there, especially with like helmet motorcycle laws nowadays because so, they used to be donor cycles until helmets you know, came. And so you, know, just, you get a new heart and you get to live. You have a new lease on life. I like that expression because it's not like you get to buy it. You just get to lease it for a while. So, and we see that people turn around. How much more 
if this is our truth, if this is our reality and story, you are not condemned though you deserve to be for your sins. How will you now live? 1 John chapter 2, John the Apostle, the elder says, my, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he wrote that with a big smile on his face. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In verse 12, he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Jesus Christ came saying that he would be our savior. He did this to earn the name savior. And so he saved us by taking our sins on himself. And so what do you do with that? The absolutely boneheaded wrong thing would be to say, wow, Jesus loved us that much when we sinned this much. Let's sin some more. That's what Paul said in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace that grace may, to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. The true Greek literal translation of that, morons, no. <laughs> it's not the true literal Greek. So it, good, it's work, it works though. It works though. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It makes no sense at all. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, our condemnation died with him. Our life only as sinners died with him. That is not our life. That is not who we are. That part died when Jesus died. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus tells this woman who he has not condemned. He doesn't declare her innocent, he declares her pardoned. But then he says, go and sin no more. Not the other way around. Thank God, not the other way around. Not stop sinning. And I pardon you. Oh, we're hosed if that was the order. If that was the way it went, then forget it. Stick a fork in us, we're done. Even if God gave us a reset button, like that staples, it's easy button, like bam, reset. Your sins don't count. Everything that you did up to this point, uh, I've wiped away. You're just good from here on out, so stop sinning. And within a heartbeat, within a blink of an eye, we would all stand condemned again. We are not enough. But Jesus Christ says, I am enough. My grace is sufficient for you. My forgiveness covers over your every sin. You know, when that woman later became aware of Jesus' death, can you imagine what she was thinking? That thought process is what we should be thinking. 
We should be thinking, this is what Jesus Christ did for me. This is the pardoning that he gave me. These words for, were for me. I am not condemned by the one who I deserve to be condemned by, but I stand forgiven, pardoned, shown mercy, given grace. To which, and Jesus knew that this would be and should be our reaction. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's quite clear. Jesus came to die for sinners and then calls us to sin no more. He is not soft on sin. Pastor John said, sin murdered the Son of God. Our sin. And so we are the woman caught in the act. What is your sin today? What is God, what sin is God calling you to repent of today and to go and sin no more? I've got them. I'm not that much worse than all of you. You've got them. What is God calling you to repent of? What lusts, what selfishness, what anger, what sadness, what envy, what cruelty? These are the things that we still struggle with in our hearts. These things for which Jesus Christ died to liberate us, to free us from them that we might go and sin no more. So again, the question, what does it mean that the woman was not condemned? What does that mean to you? That you are not condemned. Why don't we take a moment or two of silence while the elders come forth with you meditating and asking God for forgiveness of those sins. If you can't think of anything right now, well, then ask God to help you. Help you think of your sinfulness that you need to repent of. Because we're going to the place right now, this visible sermon, this reminder that Jesus Christ came to pay for those sins and calls us to sin no more.
those, uh, those minutes were preparation, preparing our hearts for what we are about to receive. I thank God that John, Pastor John, last week reminded everyone that we would be having communion, asking you to prepare your hearts, to think. What does it mean to prepare your hearts? It doesn't mean live a better life that week. I mean, try to be consistent, live that life every week, but it means think just a little bit more about what it is that Jesus Christ has done to come to this, because first Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says there are benefits to taking this and taking this in a worthy manner. It reminds us more. I mean, you're hearing, so that one sense is hearing of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But you've got five senses. And what we have here that Jesus Christ has given to us engages others, our taste, our smell, even feeling the edge of that bread in your fingers and considering what it meant that Jesus was broken for your sins, what it means that Jesus shed his blood for your sins and to come. And so it is a wonderful thing. I'm sure those of you who did prepare this week and think on it can agree with me that it was wonderful and we'll do it again and again. There are warnings too about eating and drinking judgment on yourself, which means that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that there is no other God but our triune God, then this isn't for you. Not until you can say that. So that's why we say, unless you're a member of our church or the member of any Bible-believing church, Bible-believing and preaching church, we ask that you not partake today, but then come talk to me or the elders because we want you to partake as quickly as possible we just want to make sure that you know what it is you're getting into. That you are saying what we are saying. We love our Lord Jesus because we see what he has done. And now, I give to, uh, to you what I, re what I receive from the Lord, what I give unto you. That in not, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please take and hold on to it until all have received that we might partake of it as one church, one body together.
sorrow for our sin, but with much far greater thankfulness to Jesus, take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink of it whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me.